so uh, welcome to the uh, uh, to the fourth in uh, Hartley Field's stimulating lecture series. Uh, today's uh, title is uh, or is that really revising logic? This week's will be sort of a continuation of last week's. Um, where starting next week, I'm I'm uh, going to switch subjects pretty radically to uh, uh, to the issue of uh, uh, real realism about epistemic normativity. Uh, I'm against it, and then in the final one, I'll be using that to uh, resolve the puzzle that uh, we started with. Allegedly, revising, uh, resolving it. Um, okay, so um, I'm, I'm going to start out today by uh, briefly uh, going through the Koenig paradox or, or the Berry paradox. They're basically the same paradox. So um, a, a typical language um, uh, is built up from finitely many symbols. Um, and uh, the 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 uh, uh, expressions are just finite strings of uh, symbols, and so it's easy to see then that there are only countably many formulas of the language, and in fact only finitely many formulas of length less than one thousand. Call an object definable in the language if there's a one-place formula of the language which is true of that object and not true of anything else um, and call it 1000 definable uh, if it's definable by a formula of length less than 1000 symbols um, so each formula of the language defines at most one object so it's clear that there are only many there are only countably many objects that are definable in the language, and there are only finitely many objects that are uh, 1,000 definable, that is uh, definable in less than 1,000 symbols. Um, but, but there are uncountably many ordinal n- numbers, and so uh, for any language, there have to be ordinal numbers that aren't definable in the language, and similarly, there are infinitely many natural numbers, so given any language, there are natural numbers that aren't 1,000 definable in the language. So these two bold-faced claims there are the bases for the Koenig and, and the Berry paradoxes. I mean, basically, if you're, if you're comfortable talking about ordinal numbers, then the Kernig paradox is simpler because you only have to talk about undefinable ordinal numbers. If you're not, if you want to simplify things by uh, focusing on the natural numbers, then the uh, corresponding complication is that you have to talk about 1,000 definability instead of definability. Uh, so the key claims for what follows are the bold-faced ones. In any language, there are ordinal numbers that are, are not 
definable in the language and natural numbers that are not 1,000 definable in the language. Okay, so the paradoxes are structurally similar. Um, I'll focus on the Koenig one, though the very one is, all, is there on the uh, handout. Um, so the Koenig one says, uh, t- t- uh, from the previous slide, there are ordinals that are not definable in the language. And uh, uh, we then infer, using the fact that the well ordinals are that the ordinals are well-ordered, that there is a smallest ordinal not definable in the language. Let's call it sigma k, or the uh, Koenig ordinal. But now we, we have a paradox, because the, then the predicate is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language, defines the Koenig ordinal. So we ha- have a kind of Contradiction, it's undefinable, but we have a formula that defines it. Okay, and and the Berry paradox, as I say, is completely similar. The smallest natural number, not 1,000 definable in the language, has just been defined in the language in fewer than 1,000 symbols. So how are we to resolve this paradox? Well, according to classical logic, if you have a truth of predicate that um, accords with classical logic, then the only place to solve the paradox is in the step from the claim that the Koenig ordinal is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language to the claim that the predicate is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language defines that ordinal. So I explained defines in terms of true of, so this amounts to, uh, so the claim that is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language defines this ordinal is the claim that it's true of that ordinal and of nothing else. So that's the conjunction of the claim that it's true of the ordinal and that it's not true of anything else. So so what we have in effect here then is a classical derivation of uh, what I've called uh, either the Koenig ordinal is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language, but is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language is not true of the Koenig ordinal, or uh, there, there is an ordinal other than the Koenig ordinal, such that the predicate is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language is true of that, even though that is not the smallest ordinal not definable in the language. Okay, so uh, what this says is that we have have either an example of what I called underspill last time or an example of what I called overspill last time. That is, if we take the first disjunct up there, that the Koenig ordinal is the smallest one not definable in the language, but still the predicate is the smallest ordinal not definable in the language isn't true of it, 
then, then that's an example of underspill. We have a claim of the form uh, O is F, but the, the uh, uh, formula F is not true of O. The other disjunct is an example of overspill. The other disjunct is that there is a sigma other than the Kernig or- ordinal, which such that is the smallest ordinal not definable in L is true of it, but the, but sigma is not the smallest ordinal not definable in L, and that's an example of overspill. That is, uh, uh, it involves a claim that um, uh, F is true of O, but not F O. So. The Kernig paradox shows once again that it's inevitable to have at least one of underspill and overspill given classical logic. Um, and, and of course, that's the same conclusion we reached last time uh, through looking at the liar paradox and uh, similar things. Um, but this other example will be useful. Uh, first, I should, I could imagine a possible protest that this is not an accurate portrayal of classical solution, so let me deal with that. Um, so, some classical theorists say that the notion of definability in a language L shouldn't be taken to be part of that language. Now, I explained definable in L in terms of, of uh, true of in L. So this requires saying that the uh, that the true of predicate can't be part of the language. Uh, n- n- now, it's a little bit obscure, prima facie, how this could possibly apply to English, which, w- w- which does contain the predicate true of. Um, putting that aside, um, w- um, There are there are theorists that that that, that assume that the notion of true of in English is radically ambiguous or uh, uh, something like that. Um, so they invoke a hierarchy of, of restricted truth of predicates from which restricted definability predicates uh, can themselves be defined. But but. Um, I think this is largely irrelevant to what I was saying because the an analysis that I gave that there's always either overspill or underspill is then going to hold for each of the more restricted predicates. Uh, for each truth of predicate in the hierarchy, there is going to be either underspill or overspill. And so that's really all I need. Um, <clears throat> so... I don't myself think that the um, idea of going for a hierarchy of truth predicates is attractive, but uh, I won't talk about that. The important point is that if you do take it seriously, then you're going to get overspill or underspill at each level. Now, so last time I talked about... uh, uh, a, a kind of non-classical logic solution to the paradox is one that restricts excluded middle, and it will be useful to look at how this handles the Kernig and Berry paradoxes. Um, 
So, uh, on such a solution, the, there can't be either overspill or underspill. That is, the predicate, the claim that the predicate F is true of object O is always equivalent to the claim that O is F. So, given how the term defines was explained in terms of true of, there is no room for any difference between the claim that the Kernig ordinal is the smallest one not definable in the language and the claim that is the smallest or ordinal not definable in the language defines that ordinal. Um, So the classical solution to the problem is ruled out by the naive behavior of truth of. So what is the non-classical solution going to be? Well, the 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 non-classical solution has to be that there's a problem with the derivation of the existence of a Kernigo ordinal. But there's no question that the derivation of their ordinals that aren't definable in the language is correct. So uh, 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 nor is there a question of, um, uh, of, uh, of ruling out that the ordinals are well-ordered. Um, but um, so how can this be? Uh, it must be that the claim that there are ordinals that aren't definable in the language doesn't entail that there is the smallest one, even though the ordinals are well-ordered. Well, this seems prima facie surprising. Um, but actually, it has a resolution. And, and that is that when we restrict the law of excluded middle, the fact that the ordinals are well-ordered is not properly expressed by the usual least ordinal schema. Again, if you're not comfortable talking about ordinals but want to talk about uh, natural numbers only, the corresponding thing here is the least number principle. Um, So the least number principle says if there's a natural number n such that f of n, then there's a smallest one. Uh, and and so I've just said the same thing up there on the slide for ordinals. Uh, it's for some reason I put it in highly symbolic notation, but the thing on the right here just means there's the smallest ordinal such that f. So from the claim that there is an ordinal such that f, you infer there is a smallest one. That's the usual form of the least number principle. Um, But I claim that that's not valid without excluded middle. What is valid instead is a more general version that says, if there is an ordinal uh, uh, such that f, and such that for every ordinal less than it, either it is f or it is not f, then there is a smallest ordinal such that f. That, that's what the general uh, uh, least ordinal principle should be. Um, uh, if you put it in contraposed form 
you don't 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 need the uh, the excluded middle of, of, assumption, but uh, you need the excluded middle of assumption in order to contrapose that. Um, unfortunately, I have a blackboard compatible with the screen, so I can't write that down, but uh, I can go back to it later if it's not clear. Okay, so within classical mathematics, the generalized um, least ordinal principle reduces to the classical one. Uh, uh, G reduces to C because excluded middle can be assumed to hold in complete general what they there. That is, classical mathematics doesn't contain the term true or similar predicates. Um, it, it is it contains only predicates for which excluded middle holds. So, so once you have excluded middle, of course, G entails C. But if we restrict excluded middle for predicates like true of, the more general form G is all we have when, when the formula F contains such predicates. Now, definable was explained in terms of true of, so to pass from there being ordinals undefinable in the language to there being a smallest one, we have to make a controversial application of excluded middle. In particular, we have to assume that for any segment of ordinals and any upper bound of it that is not definable in the language, then every ordinal in that segment is either definable in the language or not. Um, and what the paradox shows is that this application of excluded middle has to be rejected. Now, that of course is the same moral that I suggested last time in application to the liar paradox, but the the new application is of special interest for two reasons. The first is that the diagnosis of the Koenig-Berry paradox is centrally relevant to the uh, super-liar paradox that I mentioned last time. Uh, that involved a, a sentence that said of itself that for some, some legitimate iteration of the deterrent... Operator, uh, the sentence is not uh, 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 determinedly to that iteration true. And uh, an attempt to drive a contradiction from sentences turns out to involve the same fallacy as in the uh, Koenig and Berry paradoxes. Um, uh, that's that's really too big an issue to really discuss today. But I guess it's, you can get a sort of an idea of it by by I mean the notion of being a legitimate iteration of the determinally operator. Well, basically, what that means. I mean, it'll turn out that the legitimate iterations are just those for which the ordinal 
alpha is definable in the language. So just as um, you don't have excluded middle for definability, you don't have excluded middle for legitimate iteration of. Okay, but I won't say more about that today. Um, the but the other reason that I'm focusing on the Kernig paradox is that it the the diagnosis of it suggests that excluded middle failures might be more widespread. They might apply to vagueness as well. So let me talk about that. So again, uh, some of this stuff is stuff that people here will have heard when I gave a talk last fall, but I I think it's a minority of the current talk. Um, Okay, here's a standard puzzle about vagueness. Um, um, First of all, Bertrand Russell was old when he died, which was at approximately three times 10 to the 18 nanoseconds of age. So by the least number principle, there's a smallest natural number n such that he was old at n nanoseconds of age. Uh, Well, presumably once he was old, he stayed old, and presumably also he wasn't old when he was born. Uh, um, So this smallest natural number n must be greater than zero. And so there's a sharp cutoff point up through n minus one nanoseconds. He wasn't old, but by a nanosecond later, he was old and remained so. Okay, now it's natural to feel that this is contrary to the evident vagueness of the, of the predicate old and that it is highly counterintuitive. Well, of course, there are ways of trying to argue that this claim really isn't so counterintuitive. Actually, they're quite prevalent around here, I believe. Um, but, um, uh, and, uh, and also that it isn't contrary to the vagueness of, of the term old. Um, so, uh, I don't want to argue that point here. Um, what I will do is simply raise the possibility that the logic I've recommended for the semantic and property theoretic paradoxes might apply more broadly to vague language. And then I will consider whether this would have consequences for the issues that I'm uh, allegedly focusing on here, which is the uh, rational revisability of logic. Okay, so let's talk about the possible application of the logic to vagueness. Uh, Well, in this logic, we can get from the claim that Bertrand Russell was old when he died at uh, 3 times 10 to the 18th nanoseconds to there is a smaller natural number such that he was old at uh, that number of, of nanoseconds only if we have an additional excluded middle premise, uh, namely that at every moment he was either old or not old. Um, And of course, if you accept classical logic generally, or even for all predicates not involving uh, a 
uh, semantic or property theoretic terms, you will accept this added premise. But if you don't, you won't. Well, there's more to be said here, though. I mean, in particular, um, um, there's a clo- uh, there are close relations between. I mean, sorry, the the similarities in the resolutions of the paradoxes involve more than uh, uh, just the issue of the least number principle. So one way to see the close connection is to return to the Lukashevitz continuum-valued logic, which I discussed last time. Now, this has been the logic of choice for most people who've recommended a non-classical logic for the for vagueness. But I think that it's quite inadequate, and it's inadequate for reasons very close to the reasons why it's inadequate as a solution to the somatic paradoxes. So I, I uh, talked about those last time. Um, um, so... So the main reason here is connected with the fact that the Lukashevitz logic allows for a definition of a determinately operator, but it's not an entirely well-behaved one. Okay. So there'd be no problem having a determinately operator. Uh, uh, sorry, let me start that again. There. There would be a clear problem if the determinately operator obeyed the law of excluded middle. That is, if we had uh, determinately A or not determinately A, whatever the A. Because if that were so, then even though the term old has no sharp boundaries, the term determinately old does and this would destroy the whole point of the approach. I mean, it, there would be a first nanosecond at which Russell was determinately old. Um, fortunately, this doesn't happen. The graph of the determinately operator is as up there. And so there's a region of values, namely those where A has value uh, greater than half and less than one, uh, in which uh, determinately A or not determinately A has a value short of one. Um, in other words, there's a range of values of A where it's fuzzy whether A is determinately true. So, so far, there is no problem. Um, now, as discussed last time, um, you can iterate the determinately operator. And any finite iteration yields a, a similar graph, but one that stays at zero for longer and longer uh, and then goes up more steeply to one near the end. 
as drawn up there. Um, but again, no problem here either. There's still a range where it's fuzzy whether uh, 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 terminally A. Um, uh, but it's any any point where determinately to the NA has values strictly between 0 and 1 is enough to uh, avoid the problem. So, so far, still so good. But the problem, as you may remember from last time in a slightly different context, comes when you do an infinite iteration. So, we can define that in the language. Determinately to the omega A just means for all n the sentence obtained by placing n occurrences of the determinately operator before the A is true. And in that case, D to the omega A has value 1 if A has value 1 and it has value zero in all other cases. All right, well, now we have a problem. Um, So the problem in the context of vagueness is that even though we reject the idea that there's a magic moment at which Russell became old, we must suppose that there's a magic moment at which he became determinately to the omega power old and that again would make the whole move of restricting excluded middle pointless so despite the fact that the Lukashevitz logic is uh, widely used for vagueness I think it's really hopeless for it and recall that this is exactly the same point that defeated the continuous you unvalued logic as a solution to the semantic paradoxes. Um, there, uh, uh, the problem was that um, uh, once we defined uh, d to the omega power, uh, uh, that is a a a bivalent determinately operator, we could then construct sentences that assert their own lack of the omega truth and an an analog of the outlier paradox would return in what is in effect a classical context. All right, well, we also saw last time um, that there are ways to modify the semantics that avoids the problem. Actually, I was only a little bit sketchy about this last time, and uh, I do have a couple of slides at the end that I can give, which will not really fully explain it, but explain it more fully than I did last time. So um, if I get time, I will do that at uh, the end of uh, today's talk. But... Um, But at any rate, just going on the basis of what I said last time, um, 
what happens if you do this is that you get a semantics that it is in many ways like the continuum valued semantics. Um, that is, it, it contains a determinately operator with many of the features of that 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 operator had in continuum valued semantics. But in this case, that operator doesn't collapse to the one zero operator on iteration. Not only doesn't it, it collapse to it at level omega, it doesn't collapse to it however far you go. I mean, there is something to be said about what happens if you press it too far. I mean, obviously, if you press it into the uncountable or you know, something weird has to happen. But, but um, what happens is not that it um, uh, goes to the zero one operator. So it never produces paradox. <clears throat> and it turns out that exactly the same semantics that works for the semantic paradoxes can be applied to vagueness too. In fact, the, the semantics avoids another feature that's bad in continuum valued semantics. Um, uh, so, so in a, addition to the main problem that I've already mentioned, continuum-valued semantics has a bit of a problem because of the fact that the values in it are linearly ordered. Um, so, so because of that fact, in in continuum-valued semantics, sentences like "star" up there, uh, it's either the case that if Bob is rich, then Tim, Tim is thin, or that if Tim is rich, then or Tim is thin, then Bob is rich. Uh, these come out as logical truths. Now, of course, there are logical truths in classical logic, so um, so that's not a super problem. But it's I think it's a bit of a problem because it seems like that whatever motivation there is for rejecting either Bob is rich or Bob is not rich seems to extend to it is either the case that if Bob is rich, then Tim is thin, or that if Tim is thin, then Bob is rich. Um, so, once again, continuum-valued semantics doesn't quite live up to its motivations. But uh, the semantics that I alluded to last time doesn't take the values to be linearly ordered, so if it's applied to vagueness, it's not going to yield similar sentences. Um, let me mention that so the way that I sketched the semantics last time doesn't look as if it's terrifically natural for vagueness let me briefly mention that there is an equivalent formulation of it that actually does look more natural in the context of vagueness um I don't want to talk about this in uh, detail, but 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 um, it's a modal semantics. So you you do things with a, a set W of three valued uh, worlds or world descriptions, and a sentence gets one of the values one one half and zero at each world, and the 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 
connectives other than the conditional are treated in the way you'd expect given that there are three values. That is, uh, you have a strong cleaning semantics, for those of you who know what that is, uh, within each world. When you come to the conditional, you need a similarity structure uh, uh, on each world. And it's it's a little bit... Um, uh, it, it's it 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 subject to to slightly less stringent constraints than the famous one of uh, David Lewis. Um, that is, uh, we assign to each world W a a, a system of non-empty neighborhoods. Uh, Lewis called them spheres of similarity. And one of the reasons that that, that that term made sense for him is that the, the spheres were nested. Uh, in this case, case, you actually don't have to assume nestedness. You assume something slightly more general. So let me just call them neighborhoods. And uh, without going through the details, the, the ideas for the treatment of the conditional is that the value of a, a conditional A arrow B at a world W is going to be one if there's a neighborhood around W throughout which the value of A is less than or equal to that of B. It's going to be zero if there's a neighborhood around the world throughout which the value of A is greater than B. And it's going to be half if if uh, neither of those holds. That is, if in every, every neighborhood uh, sometimes A is less than or equal to B and sometimes not. Um, let's see, I think I won't say any more than that about it. So that's a more, that serves a little bit more the kind of semantics you might expect in the case of vagueness. Um, don't ask me why. It just is somehow. Um, um, okay, so we have a we have a we have at least the possibility that the semantics that I suggested last time for the paradoxes extends to vagueness. Does this raise a problem for the line I've been taking in these lectures on the rational revisability of logic? So, what I argued last time is that it might well be that the best logic in light of the semantic paradoxes is non-classical. Now, that's an argument for a rational revision of logic if one assumes that the logic we've been using up until now is classical logic. But there is another possible view, which is that the non-classical logic that my semantics validates is in some sense the logic we've been using all along. And while that might at first seem impossible to believe, 
I think the fact that the logic seems to work well for 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 vagueness um, does something towards um, uh, sort of, um, towards uh, suggesting that this might be the case. So the fact that it works well for vagueness is good for me in that it strengthens the case for this logic but it's bad for me in that it also strengthens the case that it's the logic we've been using all along alright so that's what I'll talk about in the rest of the lecture Um, and actually there's a possible worry here that's even um, even independently of, of, of vagueness. So Graham Priest is another person who's who's argued for a non-classical logic for the dealing with the semantic paradoxes. Uh, his is a, a different non-classical logic than mine. It's a dialectic logic in which you can. Uh, accept both A and not A at the same time for certain A's. Um, but uh, but um, in some places he seems to suggest that his line on solving the paradoxes by a non-classical logic requires supposing that such a dialectic logic is one that ordinary people really uh, really employ in practice until they've been corrupted by Aristotle and Frege and people like that who tried to brainwash them into believing in the law of non-contradiction. Um, so his suggestion in these places at least is that we don't really revise the logic we employ, we only revise our theories about what logic it is that we employ. Uh, um, So to put it in a different way, the view is that our fundamental norm allows acceptance of contradictions, but this has become overlaid for many of us by uh, our having been brainwashed by Aristotle and Frege, uh, and so we've come to accept the theory that... um, that it's illegitimate to accept contradictions. And this this, uh, theory has somewhat overlaid our practice because we we, uh, uh, try to act in accordance with this theory. But um, um, the theory really is telling us to act in a in a way different from what our fundamental norm says. And uh, uh, once Graham has explained this to us, we will go back to the uh, natural way of reasoning. Alright. But I think this picture... Of, of priests um, is highly doubtful. So 
when Frege codified classical logic and when Priest and Lukashevitz and others have codified various non-classical alternatives, they haven't primarily been theorizing about, about what logic people employ, employ, but they've been formulating candidates for a logic to employ. Um, um, I think that what logic people in fact employ isn't directly relevant to what we should employ and it's actually uh, it's not a clear question at all uh, for reasons that I may talk about in a a moment Um, so I don't deny that a proposal to employ a logic that it's at, at total variance with how people actually reason would have a little point. It would have a little point because um, it wouldn't persuade anyone. I mean, it, people just couldn't uh, 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 act in terms of that proposal. But that doesn't undermine the distinction between a, a recommendation to use a certain logic as our all-purpose logic and a theory about ordinary practice. Um, still, it's not out of the question that a proposed alternative to classical logic does correspond to how ordinary people reason at the most fundamental level. And in the case of vagueness, it does seem that a logic without excluded middle does capture something in ordinary thought. So, um, so I think that the ordinary per- person probably does have some inclination to resist the conclusion that there is a first nanosecond at which Russell was old and to resist the conclusion that at some uh, that at every given moment he either was or wasn't old so that isn't to say that they accept a non-classical logic rather than a classical one, because I'm 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 skeptical actually of there being a clear answer to the question of what their logic is. But it does seem to suggest that they don't clearly accept classical logic. But suppose we were to go further and say that they don't accept classical logic. Uh, then what would become of my case for a rational revision of the logic that we employ? So why shouldn't we say that people who are puzzled by the semantic paradoxes are simply making what are mistakes by the very logic that at the most fundamental level they employ? For instance, uh, the, um, the proposal might be that these people don't realize that the word true is a vague term uh, and, and that they should reason with it in the more general way that they do with other vague terms. That would be one way that their um, their reasoning was uh, fallacious given their underlying logic. Or um, it might be that they do realize it, but make what are mistakes by their own light. 
Um, okay, so before getting to the main response to this, uh, let me do a subsidiary response, which I, I think is of, of some importance. Um, so I've implicitly made a three-way distinction. First of all, there's the logic we employ. Second, there's our theory about what logic we do employ. And third, there's our view about what logic we ought to employ. Now, a question about all of these, and especially the first two, is what's meant by employing a logic. Um, well, I part, partly addressed this in an earlier lecture. I argued that to employ a given logic is roughly to accept its dictates for degrees of belief. Uh, sorry, I should say to... to um, to form degrees of belief in it, in accordance with its uh, dictates. Um, so, if A1 through AN obviously entail B in a given logic, then errors of reasoning aside, one who employs that logic will believe B to at least the degree of the, some of the degrees of belief in A1 through AN minus N minus 1. But now I want to focus on the hedge errors of reasoning aside. So attributing a logic to a person is a matter of idealizing their practice, uh, a matter of deciding which pieces of reasoning involve errors. And... There's then a question of what constitutes a good idealization. So what distinguishes accepting a logic but erroneously reasoning in it on a given occasion from accepting a different logic on which that erroneous reasoning was legitimate? Well, one picture of idealization involves the competence-performance distinction. So on this view, there's a logic that is in some deep sense governs our epistemic behavior, but there are various performance errors like inattention and so forth that interfere with that. And on such a logic, this deep logic would be the logic we employ. Now, um, I guess I'm skeptical about that model. And skepticism about it breeds skepticism about the clarity of the idea of the logic we employ. It seems that attributing a logic to a person is a matter of idealizing the person's practice, and idealizations needn't be unique. Now, the possible lack of uniqueness is far less relevant to the third question I had above, of namely, what logic should we employ, than it is to the question of what logic do we employ, and what is uh, our theory about uh, the logic we employ. So, I think the normative question is actually in a lot of ways the clearer question. So the worry about vagueness was First, that ordinary people don't, at the most basic level, reason in accordance with excluded middle when it comes to vague terms. Uh, so maybe they've been corrupted by Frege and others into thinking that 
thinking that they do or that they ought to, and maybe this sometimes lead, leads them to actually do so, but if so, that's a kind of performance error. Uh, secondly, the semantic paradoxes all turn on excluded middle or on other principles that we suspect in absence of excluded middle. Third, the reason these principles are inapplicable to semantic terms like true is that those terms have a kind of vagueness, or at least something closely akin to vagueness. Uh, They're vague once they're applied outside of their safe range. And fourth, ordinary people either don't realize the vagueness in semantic terms, or else they misapply their own logic of vagueness, and that's the reason why they're taken in by the paradoxes. So putting all this together, they, uh, they, they really do employ a non-classical logic of vagueness, and were they to fully realize this, they would see that the... Um, the uh, semantic paradoxes are just straightforward fallacies in that logic. Um, all right, well, I've put, well, let's get the rest of that slide. All right, so I think there's something to this worry, but for two reasons I don't think it under, undermines my case for the rational visibility of logic. The first is that while it's somewhat plausible that the ordinary person resists some applications of excluded middle and the least number principle, it doesn't seem at all plausible that the ordinary person employs a logic of the conditional that avoid semantic paradoxes. I mean, it's actually, it's a very delicate matter to get a a logic of the conditional that avoids these paradoxes. Um, um, Especially if it's one that's to capture a a, a decent part of ordinary reasoning. Um, And it seems extraordinarily unlikely that any remotely realistic idealization of ordinary practice would lead to such a logic. I mean, it's doubtful. It's doubtful that, in, in fact, that any remotely realistic idealization of ordinary practice would lead even to a logic adequate to vagueness. So, remember the Lukashevitz logic, which uh, is widely advocated, isn't advocate, isn't adequate even to vagueness, because. Um, to get a logic that's adequate to vagueness, you need one in which you can define a notion of determinateness which doesn't collapse on iteration. And even getting that is is quite a, a delicate matter. And furthermore, it's not at all clear that just avoiding the collapse on iteration would suffice for solving the problems with the semantic paradoxes. I mean, it's clearly a necessary condition for it, but it's not at all obvious that it's a sufficient condition. In in, in fact, I think it's uh, highly unlikely that it is a sufficient condition. So, 
in summary, even if one postulates that the ordinary person's logic is non-classical, it almost certainly will require revision to accommodate the paradoxes, uh, and the process of revising it to do so seems eminently rational. So we still have a case for the rational visibility logic. All right, that's the first point. Um, and the second point is that um, speculations about what logic the ordinary person employs really seem to be quite beside the point. I mean, even if we suppose that the ordinary person does, in some deep sense, employ a given non-classical logic that adequately handles the paradoxes, we can easily imagine people that don't, and couldn't they, on learning of logics that do handle the paradoxes compatibly with the intersubstitutivity of true of A with A, be persuaded that it's best to alter their inferential practice to bring it into accord with such a, a, a logic. Um, that they could is in, in effect what I tried to argue last time. I mean, I ar- argued it um, sort of assuming that we were actually such people, but actually the fact that we are such people actually doesn't play a role whatever. Um, so to summarize uh, this point, I think that sociological speculation that the ordinary person already has at some deep level, uh, uh, that they at some deep level employ such a logic, seems both dubious and irrelevant to the philosophical point. Okay, so I'll stop there.